From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. I want you to close your eyes for a minute. Unless you're driving, then please don't. But if you're sitting comfortably, close your eyes and imagine the landscape of Los Angeles. Before there were buildings, before there were orange trees, imagine a landscape covered in grapevines. Everything from Temecula North all the way up to about the Central Valley, believe it or not, prior to the citrus groves going in, vines were one of the primary things. You know, I mean, Koreatown exists right now in a place where would have been covered by vines. Malibu, um, a lot of the canyons in that area would have had vines covering because it's pretty much the only thing you could grow there. A lot of the flat areas going out in the San Gabriel Valley were all vines. I mean, as far as you could see. And a lot of that would be made not just to make wine, but also to ferment into a brandy or spirits or things. You know, people drank a, a fair amount back then, so they needed alcohol. Southern California may be famous for its citrus orchards, but before this region was known for its lemons, limes, and oranges, it was known for its grapes. Los Angeles was once home to several thriving vineyards that were well known for the wine they produced. Although LA's winemaking history hasn't received much of a spotlight, a handful of winemakers are doing their best to revive it. Filmmaker Jason Wise documents this revival in his 27-minute documentary, The Oldest Vine. Hi, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me back on. Your film is called The Oldest Vine and refers to a grapevine that's growing at the San Gabriel Mission. How did you get interested in sort of delving into the history and the history of of winemaking in L.A.? The history in Los Angeles for wine is, they were almost inseparable pre-prohibition. I mean, the original crest for Los Angeles had grapevines on it, had grape leaves and vines. It was, you know, it was so, so associated with the city. In fact, Los Angeles had more vines than anywhere else in the country pre-prohibition. So before Napa and Sonoma and Santa Barbara and even the East Coast, Los Angeles was the center of wine. So when I found that out, I became obsessed with the idea that this was the case. And I was living in the city and had no idea. So let's talk about um, the eponymous vine, the oldest vine. Tell us about it. Um, Do we know how old it is? Where is it? Who cares for it? What does it look like? This vine is as big as a a, a large tree. You can't wrap your arms all the way around it. And this one vine covers the entire mission in San Gabriel. So it covers the whole back, all this trellising, so approximately, it was planted just about the mid-1760, 1770. So, you know, this dates back before the United States was even a country. And it was part of two empires and two countries. The survival is kind of fascinating. Um, what, was this find one of the original ones that was planted by the missionaries in the 1700s, or, or was it spawned from a, a, quote, a mother vine and came along later? Well, so the, here's the crazy thing about this vine. It's a hybrid. So all the grapes we drink, all the wine we drink, for the most part, the 99% of them, they're all European grapes, Vitus, Vitus vinifera. And that all comes from Europe and the Mediterranean basin. There are some native grapes here. And so whoever planted this vine was a very smart person. They hybridized it with an American variety, and that is why it survived this long. And so it was very intentionally planted in this place, likely for religious reasons, 
to have uh, sacramental wine. And it's it just the fact that it survived has a lot to do with whoever this friar or this monk or this missionary was very good at botany. It was somebody who knew what they were doing. And I, I would imagine that most of the workers who took care of the vine, who took care of most of the vineyards at that time, were Native American. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there's a cemetery. Uh, there are several cemeteries there, but one right on the grounds, and the, and the vines actually cover these ancient graves, and a lot of them are for Native, from Native Americans who were there. Correct. I would, I would imagine that's the case. Who has been caring for it? The people who take care of it today are the people who preserve the mission themselves. And it has basically been, relatively since Prohibition, it has just been sort of cut back and trained to go through uh, the top of the trellis that goes, uh, goes all the way through the mission. And for the most part, nobody's done anything with these grapes. And so now people are using the, the actual grapes that are growing to make a wine called Angelica, which is famous in Los Angeles. It gets its name from this place. And so it's actually being cared for by these Los Angeles winemakers. Okay, so let's talk about these these current winemakers um, who are making wine with local fruit grown in Los Angeles. It's such a wild idea. How did you meet them? Who are they? Well, so I had heard there was a winemaker named Mark Blatty who was making wine that could rival the wines of Napa, the great wines of Northern California and Central California. And I sort of like, I have to say my first impression was there's no chance. I mean, I've spent a decade all over the world, and I just, I don't mean to sound smug here, but I didn't think that statement could be true. So I met Mark, and he, first thing he did was he blind tasted me on a bunch of really, really, really expensive wines, and he hid his flagship Cabernet in this wine. And I picked it second out of wines that in many cases are $250 a bottle. I, I, I My head exploded. And so then we shot a documentary on Mark himself and what him and his wife are doing here. And a lot of the vines they make wine from are actually scattered. Some are ancient. Some go back 150 years. They exist in places like Agua Dulce. And then others are in the backyards of places like Bel Air. So wealthy people who had planted vines in the 60s or the 50s or 70s, in some cases, the silent film era, and they haven't done anything with them. And so Mark manages their vines, takes a little fruit for the effort, and makes wine out of it. And it's an incredible thing where he's been able to find dozens of scattered vineyards all across in some very wealthy areas in some cases, and he makes this wine that rivals some of the best wine I've had in California. So it was these three groups, Angelino Wine Company, Blatty, and Cavaletti Vineyards, who formed a group called L.A. Vintners. How did they meet each other and decide to come together and make a wine from this ancient vine, which is called the Ramona vine? Well, I think what happens is when you, when you only have three or four people doing it, or groups of people, you're inevitably going to end up at the same bar having a cocktail. And so I think they sort of all came together, and when... They visited the mission. Somebody called Angelina Wine Company, Terry, the woman who manages the, the mission, and she said, we have this vine here. There are grapes on it. Would you guys like to come take a look? And so they came and took a look at it, and I think their jaw hit the floor. And so they said, what are you doing with the grapes? And she said, we just trim them and the birds eat them. Now, this is a 260, 70-year-old vine. And so they, they said, can we have them? And she said, yeah, will you help us take care of the vine? And so all of them kind of came together and said, we should do this together as a celebration for the resurgence of Los Angeles wine. 
of which they were sort of pioneering. They're the only ones really doing this outside of Malibu. And they got together, they started making this wine, and they decided to make it in, a, in, in the Angelino style, which is a fortified wine that dates back to, like I said, the gold rush. Well, thank you so much. The The documentary is really um, so engaging and eye-opening, especially if people have no idea of this history. Oh, thank you so much. I was lucky to produce it. I appreciate it. That was filmmaker Jason Wise, director of the documentary The Oldest Vine. One of the winemakers featured in the film is Amy Luftig. In 2018, she and her partner, Jasper Dixon, launched Angelina Wine Company, the first winery in the city of Los Angeles since Prohibition. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. What made you want to launch a winery, and why did you decide to do it in the city of Los Angeles? Tell us a bit about this journey. Yeah, we, we as you mentioned, started our, our winery. We actually started our first vintage in 2015, and we started out by making wine using grapes that are grown and made in Los Angeles. For those first several years, we would pick our grapes through working with various vineyards throughout Los Angeles County. And we would actually take those grapes and we would drive them five, six hours north and make it in Northern California at a, at a friend's winery up there. And the entire time that we would take those drives, we would talk about how really Los Angeles was the birthplace of winemaking in California. Lots of people think that winemaking began in Napa and Sonoma here in the state. But in fact, uh, we were making in our, in our heyday over 25 million bottles of wine a year here. In fact, many of those bottles were being made right here in downtown Los Angeles. And so given that we were picking fruit from Los Angeles, we really wanted to honor Los Angeles's sort of lost winemaking history and bring the winemaking not just to the county of Los Angeles, but specifically downtown LA, where winemaking began in the state. And I'm so curious how you started to explore that there even were a sufficient amount of grapes grown within Los Angeles to think that you could begin such a project. Yeah, I mean, most of the the vineyards that we we work with are in the kind of more rural parts of Los Angeles County. The main and the first um, vineyard that we started working with is up in a small town called Agua Dulce, which is outside Santa Clarita. It's called the Alonzo Family Vineyard. And Juan Alonzo is the owner of the vineyard and also of a really incredible French restaurant out there called Le Chen. And uh, Jasper actually met him first. Uh, he tried a wine that was made from grapes that were picked at the vineyard, specifically Tanat, which we, we now pick and make ourselves. And uh, when Jasper had tried this wine and learned that the grapes came from LA, he reached out to Juan and went up to visit the vineyard and slowly started picking fruit from, from him. And we just kind of, when Jasper and I joined forces, we just kind of ended up buying more and more of the fruits and ultimately pretty much at this point buy the majority of the the grapes that come out of that vineyard. 
Subsequently, we have found several more vineyards that we have absolutely fallen in love with. Um, Some of them are up in the Antelope Valley, uh, up in the Lake Hughes area. We've been working with an incredible vineyard that dates back to the 1800s, mid-1800s, called the Lopez Vineyard, which is out in Rancho Cucamonga, technically right on the border of LA County, but just a stone's throw away. Um, And we just, yeah, we continue to learn about these, these little pockets of vineyards, some of them very old, some of them newer. And if we fall in love with the fruit, we we take it and make the wine here. You're part of the LA Vintners who have become stewards of this extraordinary vine at the San Gabriel Mission that dates back to the 1700s. Tell us about the wine that the group decided to make from it. Yeah, so we are making a wine called Angelica, um, which is believed to be named after the city of Los Angeles. Um, the vine is a hybrid of two different types of, of vine, Vitis Gurdiana, which is native to Southern California and Baja, and then uh, Vitis Vinifera, which is the original uh, vine of Asia and Europe, and specifically the Mission grape um, of it, Vitis Vinifera. So I guess an easier way to say that would be it's a blend of Vitis Gurdiana and the Mission grape. And so how it is made is it's actually a fortified wine. And we take, we pick these, these grapes and they take all day, almost all day to pick. And we bring the, the, the grapes uh, back to the winery and we press the juice and then we fortify it almost immediately with a spirit. Um, in this case, we use brandy uh, that we got from the Spirits Guild here in the Arts District. We wanted to keep it as local as possible. And we uh, we fortify the freshly pressed juice. So the, the juice itself actually never fortif- um, sorry never ferments into kind of a traditional wine as you think of, of grapes fermenting. Um, and so you end up with this really cool sort of sweet, almost like cordially dessert wine that is has so much complexity of flavor. It's incredible. Um, if people are interested in getting their hands on some of that wine, is it still possible? We haven't even released it yet, actually. So we there's only a very small amount of it. Um, I had mentioned that we, you know, we kind of pick the fruit all day. And even with um, having picked the fruit all day, the, the grapes are so small and there is there are kind of so few of them on each branch that we end up only getting about a half a barrel or three quarters of a barrel um, of Angelica every year. We are going to release ours in the spring of this year, we think, or maybe summer of this year. And we we are going to release it to our wine club first. If there is any after that, we'll release it to the general public, but we are giving our wine club uh, the first dibs at the Angelica. So in the process of doing research on um, on how you think that um, these grapes were originally turned into wine, did you come across any other styles from those Early that early heyday of LA winemaking that you're um, carrying forward. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. We when we first started this winery, we actually did quite a bit of research about the kinds of wines that were made here in Los Angeles, and there are a lot of streets and you know areas of the city that are named after some of the original winemakers uh, here in Los Angeles. So for example, um, if you're familiar with Vigna Street, which is right behind Union Station, that is named after Jean-Louis Vigne, 
or Vine, who was really the first winemaker to make wine kind of on a commercial or sort of non-religious, in sort of a non-religious way. Um, and he was making wine for the city and he was also making wine for export. The reason I bring him up is that he came here from Bordeaux, France, and he started making wine kind of more in the European style or in the Bordeaux style. And we really, we honor him in many ways here at Angelina Wine. Um, one of the ways is in our logo. Um, so his winery was called El Aliso, which is um, sycamore tree, his sycamore tree that he had on his property. And his property was right behind Union Station, what is now Vigna Street. And so we have his sycamore tree at the center of our logo. And most of our bottles um, are the shape of the bottles that he would have, probably would have been bottling in. So kind of, it's a long way of saying that kind of woven throughout whatever we do here at Angelino, we always want to try and honor the ones who came before us and pass on the very important message to us that we are the birthplace of winemaking here in California and that we should really be proud of our winemaking history. Our climate is obviously very different from the winemaking regions in Northern California. Are there um, specific challenges or maybe benefits um, to making wine here? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we have an almost absolutely perfect climate (laughs) for winemaking. Um, What's really fun is that we have such a diversity of climates within LA County. There's a diversity of soils within LA County. Um, And even within the same vineyards, honestly, when some of us at LA Vintners make wine from uh, grapes using the exact same fruit picked on the same day at the same time, we all make very, very different styles of wine. So what I have found is that the the climate and the and the diversity of the types of grapes that are here and where they're grown throughout this really huge county um, really lends itself to incredible grapes and incredible wines. But what's really fun is how we all make such different styles from those grapes. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming to the show, Amy. It's such a fascinating part of our history. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. And and please come by the the tasting room uh, whenever you can. We're open uh, Saturday 12 to 8, Sunday 12 to 6, and uh, always have a kind of a fun tasting menu to try. That was winemaker Amy Luftig of Angelina Wine Company, the first winery to open in the city of Los Angeles since Prohibition. It is one of the wineries featured in the documentary The Oldest Vine. For more information on the film and the vintners featured in it, head to our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. Coming up, vegan mapu tofu. Well, we'll tell you how to make it when Good Food continues. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, Hannah Cha turned to veganism as an adult. But when she did, she worried that a plant-based diet would prevent her from eating the Chinese food that connected her to her family, her history, and her culture. Determined to teach herself how to cook her favorite dishes without any meat, she started the blog The Plant-Based Walk. Now she's published a cookbook. The Vegan Chinese Kitchen, Recipes and Modern Stories from a Thousand-Year-Old Tradition. Hi, Hannah. 
Hi, Evan. It's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. So what prompted your decision to actually go to culinary school in in Guangzhou? I had taken a trip to China the summer after I graduated from my master's degree. And I'm a musician. Like, I play the piano. That was what my career was, kind of the direction my career was headed towards. But I had taken this trip. I went to so many vegetarian restaurants in China. And it really opened my eyes to, first of all, just the vast tradition and really long-standing tradition too. There's actually over 2,000 years of history of vegetarian cooking in China. And it really developed in Buddhist temples and then in palaces, but also in the homes of ordinary families. And so after that trip, I was just so interested in exploring this cuisine and I couldn't really find much information online. I couldn't really find recipes. And I decided that the best way to learn about this cuisine was to really just immerse myself in that culture and learn from the actual cooks and chefs and talk to like the Buddhist monks and really just dive deep into it. And I found this vegetarian culinary school in Guangzhou. It was actually, it is still the only official culinary program for vegetarian cooking in China. And I have to ask, is there a big leap in the culinary tradition there between vegetarian cooking and vegan cooking? Yeah, so that's a great question because there's a difference between the concept of vegetarianism in China and in the Buddhist tradition and in the West. So even just the term vegetarian is a, little, is a misnomer because in the West, like if you're vegan, you don't eat animal products. But in China, this definition also includes alliums. So scallions, onions, garlic, any of those more pungent aromatics, they're considered, the Chinese term is like xiaohun, like a lesser meat. And I think it's because of that whole religious practice where mm. monks wouldn't, eat or wouldn't cook with those ingredients. And so vegetarian in China would not include these plants because they were considered not vegetarian, but then they did eat eggs. It's so interesting. So in your book, The Vegan Chinese Kitchen, you explain that certain vegetables have flavors that are only brought out when paired with other ingredients. What is the name of that, of the concept? And that means drawing or coaxing out flavor. Mm -hmm. In Chinese, it's called wei. It's based on this concept where Chinese cooking is all about combinations. And so you rarely get a dish that's just one thing. For instance, they won't, won't just take cauliflower and kind of just like roast it and just have that dish they would think of pairings and like combinations. So we would start with aromatics and they used ginger a lot. They used dried chilies and citron peppercorns. And then we would learn about building a dish from several vegetables. So for instance, there's a recipe in the book that uses winter squash. And the concept there is that winter squash the sweetness really pairs well with 
fermented black beans. And so that dish really exemplifies just like how that sweet and savory combination can create something very delicious and like very kind of savory and satisfying. Um, I've always used romaine lettuce as an occasional cooked green, which I have to say some of my friends find really odd. Um, (laughs) Could you describe your blanched lettuce with ginger soy sauce? Yeah, I had a very similar opinion, um, shared opinion of your friends where I thought it was odd to cook romaine lettuce. But if you think of lettuce as just another green, it makes more sense because for Chinese cooks, it's just another leafy green and it has this flavor that you can only taste when you cook it. And it's kind of this savory sweetness that comes out in this case, in the case of this recipe, you blanch it and then dress it with the soy sauce and frizzled ginger dressing. And you can like eat it with rice. It, it's kind of, it wilts the um, leaves, but then keeps the stems still juicy. But then you have the aroma of the ginger and the sesame oil as well. And th- it's gorgeous because you're cooking the whole head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're separating the leaves and then blanching them. But then when you present the dish... Um, a lot of Chinese dishes are all about the presentation and like the harmony and the color and like the look of the presentation. And so I was taught to, you take those leaves and kind of pile them on the plate where they look like the whole head again. You're kind of like reassembling it where you're just like piling them in a very intentional way. So let's take a dish like mapo tofu. Um Was it pretty easy to um, make your own version of that that made you happy? Yeah, so mapo tofu is one of those dishes where I think I don't miss the meat at all when I'm making this dish. And the reason for that is that the other flavors or the primary flavors of this dish, like the fermented black beans, the chili bean paste, the citron peppercorns, the ground chilies, like everything has such a strong, it's such a strong flavor profile. And it's already such a delicious dish just with those seasonings that for me, the the meat part was more about the texture and having those little frizzled bits and like those chewy bits amongst the softer tofu in the dish. In this vegan version, you just use dried and rehydrated shiitake mushrooms and you chop them up very finely so that it kind of looks like a minced or ground beef or pork. And then you cook it in the same way, really. Just stir fry a little bit in the oil and then you add all the other aromatics and seasonings and you add the tofu. And so, yeah, I think this is a good example of a dish where people are more used to the version with pork. But then when you actually make this dish using, let's say, shiitake mushrooms, then you find that the flavors are so distinctive, you don't really miss the meat part of it at all. Well, it's a lovely book. I know I'm definitely going to be cooking out of it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited for people to be cooking from it. That was Hannah Cha, author of The Vegan Chinese Kitchen, Recipes and Modern Stories from a Thousand-Year-Old Tradition. You'll find a recipe for her blanched lettuce with ginger soy sauce on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood.
As children, we all eat with our hands. We do it chaotically, messily, then over time are coaxed to use utensils or eat neatly with our fingers. Eating with your hands isn't exclusive to any particular culture or region of the world. As writer Serena Alagapan points out, it's a common practice in Ethiopian cuisine, Oaxacan cuisine, many South Asian cultures, the Middle East, Africa, and South America. But somewhere along the way, it was deemed uncivilized and unhygienic. Yet the practice has persisted. She explores the history in her juggernaut story, how the West deemed eating with your hands uncivilized. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much for having me and for reading the piece. I love the piece because, you know, I um, I was a chef for many years. And every time I was in a group of chefs, you know, where we're all casually eating, I, w- I always noticed how much we ate with our hands. I've always thought that it's just a way of being more, I don't know, intimate with the food. Um, In your story, you write so beautifully. You begin the story with, I love the crunch of ora dal, chana dal, and mustard seeds popped in hot oil, then pushed forward by my thumb. I love when grains of rice made yellow with turmeric and tangy with lemon juice move from my fingers to my tongue. I notice the turmeric dyeing the skin around my nails. I savor the sambar, how the tips of my fingers are pruned by the time dinner comes to a close. That's just so evocative. Thank you. Was there a certain age where you realized you were kind of being prepped to use utensils for the outside world? You know, I kind of remember learning how to eat with my hands alongside learning how to eat with utensils. Um, I think that's probably one of the most common misconceptions um, about eating with your hands. There is also technique to it, and those techniques vary wildly between different regions and even different households and families. But um, yeah, I think I, I learned those things alongside each other. And for me, eating with your hands, it's really just a reminder of home and these childhood memories, especially with my father's family, my first food memories are these little rice balls that someone in my family, either my mom or aunt or grandmother would make and then fold in some vegetables, some chicken, put it on a little piece of uplum, which is kind of lentil-based chip of sorts and and feed me. And it was just this perfect bite. Um, So yeah, I mean, I remember learning how to make those little balls. And around the same time, I remember being taught how to use a fork and knife. You you mentioned that there are so many different ways of eating with your hands and the etiquette around this can be quite different. Can you describe mm. a couple of different methods? Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to characterize it too much because it varies so much. Um, oftentimes it varies between different kinds of foods. For instance, you might rip and hold a chapati differently than you would you know, eat your fish uh, while avoiding bones and checking for bones. Um, but some of the different methods include eating with just the tips of your fingers or clumping your fingers together and then sort of, as I wrote, pushing forward the food with your thumb. Some some say not to use um, your pinky finger or only to use three fingers or some would use the whole palm, especially for more runny dishes. Some would even potentially use both hands if a dish required it. So again, it varies so much, but in my experience, we were told to use our right hand and and mostly our fingers. Until the last few hundred years, most of the world ate with their hands. Um, I mean, perhaps bread acted as a utensil. How and when did people start making the shift 
to utensils? And how was it connected to the shift from communal to individual meals? Yeah, so so some utensils have existed for a long time. And I really didn't know so much about this until I was writing the story, but then I sort of went on this deep dive. And it really varies depending on the utensil. But for instance, knives existed for a long time to carve meat. And spoons also existed for a long time for certain liquids, for soups. But what really arrived in the last few hundred years was the table setting. And that, you know, the fork and knife at the table and the spoon at the table. But you also see this in non-Western contexts. So, you know, the rise of chopsticks, the individualized kind of disposable chopstick didn't actually come until 1878 from Japan. And in the European context, you see the rise of silverware settings um, and forks not being well-established in homes for those individual place settings until the 1800s. And yeah, I think that this did dovetail uh, the shift from common dishes in the 17th century to these more individualized place settings. And it is really interesting to think about investing in the table setting as a kind of separate experience and a new social process that didn't really exist uh, beforehand. So it was it's very socialized and we kind of have naturalized the existence of table settings, but it is, you know, a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, I think it's so interesting how we still call table settings silverware, even though they may not be made out of silver, but the fact that they were made out of precious metals clearly points to some sort of class distinction. Absolutely. And, you know, you can even think about with certain foods that sometimes the silverware is sort of impractical, you know, like eating peas with a fork or, you know, or rice with chopsticks. Like sometimes it doesn't even, it's not the most natural way of eating the food always, but it's something that people are trained to do. And usually it was to signal something about your class status or privilege. And it was only later that it became more common, um, you know, throughout society and among all different uh, class backgrounds. So when when and why did the West begin actively stigmatizing the practice of eating with one's hands? Did they did they do things to try and stamp it out? Uh, yeah, so I think actively stigmatizing is definitely different from profound pressures to assimilate, but I think that both characterizations resonate for different people. What I found from the interviews I conducted is that Many people from the South Asian context who grew up in the West felt that they were in this minority group who ate with their hands. And while I didn't personally experience this, a lot of the people I spoke to had been actively bullied or mocked or compelled in school or in camp. For instance, to use a fork, my my cousin was told by a camp counselor that eating with her hands was uncivilized, which is sort of where that bit of the title came from. There is also besides those more active kind of stigmatizing situations, there's the more insidious and covert commentary that also can cause people to abandon certain cultural practices like this one. It's not only in the diaspora or only in the West. I also interviewed some people who shared that they did face those similar kind of classist stigmatizations in South Asia. And so I was trying to represent that kind of range of perspectives and including people who would scratch their heads and say, you know, what stigma? And I think that opinion is really important. And the article is obviously a limited context, but I did want to mention that, you know, there were a huge range of perspectives on this. And some people didn't feel that stigmatization so actively. Other people felt it acutely. So 
Even as many countries and cultures adopted utensils, eating with your hands has endured in in South Asia um, and in Africa too. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that on on one hand, as you mentioned, you know, it is the shared experience for most people in the world for most of human history. So I started with that question of, you know, why has it endured? And then I sort of came around to the question of why did people start adopting utensils? In in some cases, it's just because it's the practice that has bit that has resisted, you know, these other colonial interventions or these um, pressures to assimilate. And there's a whole host of reasons for for why that might be, you know, preference, also, you know, that it's there's a pleasure element, just that it can really affect the taste of food, that it, you know, harnesses people to their heritage. That was the way they were taught. That was the way they were socialized. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a whole host of reasons. Could you speak a little bit about the pleasure and, and benefits to eating with your hands? Does it slow down the pace of consumption or, or make you more aware of what you're eating? For many people I spoke to and for me and for my family, I think it makes you more mindful. It makes you savor the food more and it does slow you down. And you can really feel the temperature and the texture of the food. And you also develop, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this more intimate connection to the very thing that's going to nourish you. One of the things I found so interesting was um, an interaction that you you mentioned between the metallic utensil and certain foods. And you mentioned um, dosa idli and vada specifically, yeah. um, that they taste better without the metallic tinge of a fork. Could you talk about that? Sure, yeah. For me, those are the first foods I think about when I think of eating with my hand and something those are the first foods I think of when I think about a fork feeling very intrusive. <laughs> but um, And I don't know, I mean, for, maybe it's something about the fluffiness of an idli. It's like, you know, clouds melting on your tongue or the particular mix of flakiness and crunchiness and softness of dosa or vada. Like for me, these foods, they have multiple textures and I grew up feeling them. And so uh, to think about, you know, something cold or hard or metal sort of intervening there would really feel like a departure from the way I know that food tastes and my experience of eating it. Uh, But that being said, I really love a lot of cuisines and I don't feel that way, for instance, about spaghetti, even though I enjoy that food. So I think it is an emotional and intimate feeling I have with South Indian food in particular because of what it represents for me. Well, thank you so much. It was really a wonderful article. I love this conversation. Thank you, Serena. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for reading the piece. It means a lot. That was Serena Alagapan, who has explored the various traditions around eating with your hands. You'll find a link to her story, How the West Deemed Eating With Your Hands Uncivilized, on our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. In a minute, globalization, political intrigue, and serendipity. The humble seat has it all. I talk to a seat detective next. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. As I was cooking 15 pounds of beans the other day, I was thinking about how they are also seeds and how seeds are factories of life and encyclopedias of culture. They're also genius geographic and climate adapters nestling up to particular stories of identity and belonging. 
Adam Alexander calls himself the Seed Detective, and his new book tells tales of globalization, political intrigue, and serendipity. Hi, Adam. Hi there, Evelyn. How are you doing? I'm good. We're so happy to have you here on Good Food. Could you tell us about the initial seed encounter you had in Donetsk that pushed you onto this journey? Yes, uh, I, uh, of course I can. I'm a filmmaker by profession, that both making movies or had made movies and documentaries. And back in the late 80s, I found myself in, of all places, Donetsk in Ukraine. And when I was there, it was, um, you know, the, the dying years of the Soviet Union. And Donetsk was a crumbling steel and coal town. But it was an interesting place because... It was founded, actually, by a Welsh steel magnate called John Hughes and named after him Yusufka at the time of the Tsar at the end of the 19th century. And um, the story of the town is really the story of the Soviet Union. And uh, while we were there, we were staying in a, in, in a sort of Communist Party hotel. And I think they didn't really like the fact that there were foreigners in the hotel. And... The um, kitchen staff refused to um, cook for us, look after us, and I wasn't having any of this. So I went off to the local market, and there I, I met somebody who I call her everyone's ideal granny, a babushka character, um, a sort of diminutive elderly lady who was growing vegetables in her backyard to help to make ends meet. And amongst the things that she had on a table in the market, which I thought nothing of at the time, was some uh, bell peppers, sort of round the size of a tennis ball with four lobes. And I bought a few and took them back to the kitchen. And the the pepper in Ukraine and actually in Eastern Europe is a really important part of their food culture. So it was not surprising to see it in the market. Um, But when I cut it open and bit into the flesh, it was a sort of wow moment because this pepper was not only sweet, but it had this wonderful fruity heat to it. And the next day I went back and I found her and I bought some more. And this time I thought, I wonder what happens if I take out the seeds and take them home and um, see if I can grow them back at home. And obviously I've been gardening all my life and... um, it was a new idea to take something back with me from a journey which was both a memory but also a link to a, a culture that I had had discovered. And, of course, that pepper grew very happily in my garden and I've been growing it ever since. In your introduction, you, you, you mentioned about, you know, the genius of plants in terms of their adaptability. And it's a great testament to the diversity, the genetic diversity of these traditional heritage and heirloom varieties that, you know, I can take that pepper from the black soil of Ukraine back to the um, somewhat damper and cooler summers of uh, of east wales and the pepper is incredibly happy at this point in time how many different seeds do you have squirreled away i keep about 500 varieties of vegetables 
all together in, in a couple of refrigerators in my garage. And they are, they're a mixture of seeds that people have just given me and sent me from all over the world. And then there are probably about half of the seeds that I have in my collection are ones that I've found on my travels. You document seeds that came from the East and those that came from the West. I would love to start with the East. Tell us about your sure. search for Welsh leeks and, and first begin with what <laughs> the culinary importance of the leek is in Wales or the UK at large. Yeah, this is a vegetable that has been appropriated by various civilizations. It was considered by Nero, the Roman emperor, to, to improve his oratory skills. So he used to eat leeks in vast quantities. And the, 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 the public called him leek breath, porous breath, <laughs> because which was a form... An, an insult. You know, the, the Romans invaded Britain and introduced the domesticated leek to Britain. Not that it was particularly sophisticated vegetable at that time. And so this idea of its qualities in helping you to speak lived on with the patron saint of Wales, St. David, who was this heroic figure who fought off the Saxon invaders. And of course, what did he do? He ate large quantities of leeks because it helped him sing. So the leek has been seen as emblematic, if you like, of Welshness, um, ably told by uh, the great bard himself, Shakespeare, in Henry IV. And uh, there is this much joking about the Welsh wearing leeks in their caps when they fought the, the, fought the Battle of Creasy and on and on and on. And right up until the start of the 20th century, the Welsh were beating themselves up about what should be the national emblem of Wales. And um, th there are these hilarious arguments by the great and good that should it be the daffodil, this noble flower, or should it be some stinking herb, namely the leek? Um, actually, the leek won out initially, but now both the leek and the daffodil seem to have equal status. So there's this kind of powerful sense of identity in Wales towards the leek. But actually, there is no such thing as a Welsh leek. Up until the sort of early 1940s, there was a variety of leek being sold commercially called the Welsh leek. It stopped being uh, grown commercially after World War II. And the truth is, the one part of the United Kingdom which is absolutely synonymous with leek breeding and is probably the most important place for developing varieties of leeks over the last 150 years is Scotland. Okay, so now from the West, from our part of the world, um, the Americas, chilies. So going back to that red pepper that you ended up finding in uh, Donetsk, um, when, when did they find their way to Britain, and how long did it take palates used to mild foods embrace the hotter varieties? Well, the, the journey of the chili 
from when where it was, and I say this in inverted commas, discovered by Christopher Columbus, who sailed the ocean blue in 1492 and stumbled upon what he thought was India, but it was in, was in fact the West Indies, and there came across uh, actually two types of chili. One which was the sort of cayenne type, and the other which was the much smaller one, which is associated with Tabasco sauce, two different actual species of chili. And it was one of the amazing stories of globalization, I think, is the journey of those vegetables from the new world to the old world. And it happened at lightning speed. The Portuguese basically got the chili into India early in the 16th century, within 10 or 12 years of Columbus bringing the first chilies back to Europe that the, that the Spanish seem to have absolutely no interest in other than as a, as a means to make some money. It then, th- this, this incredible vegetable essentially took over the world's cuisine. And when you talk about how did it really work in Britain, it's quite interesting that there's a, there's a story in, in the book about a vegetable that I think absolutely encapsulates the what globalization was really all about 500 years ago, but has actually been with us ever since we started carrying seeds around in our pockets. There was um, a particular pea that was bred in France in the 19th century. It was a very important pea because it was... Uh, also one that Mendel experimented with when he was doing his work on genetics called Jean de Madras. And it was presumed to have come from India. This was a marketing ploy. And why was it called Jean de Madras? Because it was yellow. And what was the great dish of the time? This is in the, the sort of 1880s in London. What was everybody going crazy about? Madras curry. But I tell you something, Madras curry was an entirely English invention. It had nothing to do with India. But of course, it had as a vital ingredient, the chili pepper. Thank you so much, Adam. Well, thank you for, for, for letting, me, letting me hold forth. <laughs> That's Adam Alexander. Since the late 1980s, he's been on a quest to seek out the unusual, rare, and endangered. His book is The Seed Detective, uncovering the secret histories of remarkable vegetables. Need a new hot sauce in your pantry or a dozen fresh eggs? Prosperity Market is popping up today at the California African American Museum. We'll tell you all the reasons to check it out next. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. Here are some sobering numbers for you. Only 2.2 of U.S. employer businesses are Black-owned, and they receive less than 2% of the nation's sales. Two-thirds of all Black businesses are located in the hardest-hit COVID areas, resulting in 41% having to close. And Black farmers, they make up only 1.3% of the 3.4 million total farmers in this nation. 
At the height of the pandemic, Kara Still and Carmen Diane looked at these statistics and decided to do something about it. We first met the duo two years ago when they launched Prosperity Market, a mobile market showcasing Black farmers and entrepreneurs in Los Angeles. And today, they celebrate the end of Black History Month and their two-year anniversary with a pop-up at the California African American Museum. Hi, both of you. Hello. Hi. Take us back to 2021 and remind us what the catalyst was for launching the market. Like, what was your aha moment? Um, This is Carmen. And the aha moment really was, so we started this in 2020, the concept. And um, we spent a lot of time researching, but the aha moment was just realizing that if you want to support a Black-owned business, uh, it's, it's really hard to do. You think there's not many of them. You don't know where they are. But the truth is we have so many great businesses and we wanted to figure out a way to support them, to encourage more of them, particularly when it comes to food and Black farmers, because food insecurity is also a really big problem. And we we saw the deep layers within the problem that we were solving. And we've, we figured out an all-encompassing solution, if I do say so myself. <laughs> yeah, since the launch, you've hosted over 20 pop-up markets all over Los Angeles. And I'd love if you could spotlight some of your regular vendors. Could you shout out a few farmers um, for us who are going to be at today's event? Uh, yes, this is Kara. So one of the farmers that's been with us from the very beginning is the farmer Ken. We're excited that he has grown along with us on this journey. He, at the very beginning, he was in East L.A., and now he's on uh, just over an acre of land, so he'll be at the event. Um, We also have uh, IGH Gardens. Charles is a former veteran who grows a lot of food for uh, homeless and unhoused uh, veterans as well, and he'll be there. One of our newer farmers, which is Golden Greens Farms, um, we're really excited to have them a part of the team. They've been with us for the last few months, and they have some lion's mane mushrooms and blue oyster mushrooms that we're a little excited about. Wow, that's great. In, In addition to Farmers the Market, of course, also features local entrepreneurs. Tell us about Gloria's Chito. We love Gloria's Chito. It's a Umami black pepper sauce from Ghana. And that's a regular condiment that they use. It's it's like on their table. It's, it's as common as ketchup is here today in Ghana. And it's so unique and so flavorful. And it goes on anything. And it makes me feel like a chef because anything I put it on, it's delicious. And uh, <laughs> she's also just the sweetest person. And she's a chemist, actually, which I think is really cool. What's another food vendor that you think we should know about? Someone who offers just a really amazing variety of of foods that are all delicious is uh, My Daddy's Recipes. And all of her products are vegan and they taste delicious. So everything from chili to mac and cheese to ceviche, you really won't be disappointed with any of My Daddy's Recipes. So you, the two of you started out with a vision of a mobile trailer so that you can have a physical home no matter where you're popping up. What's the status of the trailer now? 
We are very excited to share that the trailer will be coming this year. We actually went to visit um, the manufacturer, Sabi, from Stainless, LA Stainless Kings. So we saw the progress of the trailer. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's got all four walls. We have some kitchen equipment in there. We're very excited, and it'll be here before we know it. So for anyone who can't make it to today's pop-up, at um, the California African American Museum. Can listeners purchase any of the local products via your website? So thank you so much for asking. We actually have a monthly virtual market that customers can shop and you can shop the goods that we have in person as well as a few other vendors. And you will be able to schedule a pickup because we have satellite pickup locations around LA or we just recently started delivery and you can have your item delivered to you. And... We have a special market going on that starts the 27th where you can come up, go online and order and get all of your goods right after you hear this. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. That was Carmen Diane and Kara Still. Together, they are the creators and the force behind Prosperity Market, a mobile market showcasing Black farmers and entrepreneurs across Los Angeles. The market is popping up today at the California African American Museum from 11 to 3.30 p.m. So, Angelinos, check it out. And if you can't make it today, we've got the details on how you can support Prosperity's mission on our website at kcrw.com slash goodfood. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. Of course, you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. I'm Evan Kleinman. Angelinos, don't be scared of the rain. Head on out and support Prosperity Market today. Then you can drive over to Angelino Wine Company and reward yourself with a glass of local wine. I'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Good Food. 